If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thank you all for coming this evening, and thanks to the LRB and my friend Andrew for the initiative of having me here tonight. Uh, I thought of uh, starting with a poem that has uh, some sort of smile within it. It's called I Have No Problem. I look at myself, I have no problem. I look acceptable, and to some girls, my gray hair might even be attractive. My eyeglasses are well made. My body temperature is 37 degrees, exactly. My shirt is ironed and my shoes don't hurt. I have no problem. My wrists are not chained. My tongue has not been silenced. I have not been sentenced so far. I have not been fired. I am allowed to visit my relatives in jail and visit some of their graves in some countries. I have no problem. I am not shocked that my friend has grown a horn on his head and I like his skill in hiding the obvious tail under his clothes. I like the calmness of his clothes. He might kill me, but I shall forgive him, for he's my friend, and he can hurt me every now and then. I have no problem. The smiles of the television anchor don't make me ill anymore, and I got used to the khakis stopping my colors by night and day and therefore, I keep my ID even at the swimming pool. I have no problem. Yesterday, my dreams took the night train, and I didn't know how to say goodbye to them. I heard of the train's crash at a barren valley. Only the driver survived. So I thank God, and I didn't cry much, for I have small nightmares that I will turn into great dreams. I have no problem. I check myself from the day I was born till now, and in my despair, I remember that there is life after death. There is life after death, and I have no problem. But I ask, oh God, is there life before death? 
Thank you. Short poems. Desire. His leather belt hangs on the wall. The pair of shoes he left behind has turned brittle. His white summer shirts still sleep on their shelf. His scattered papers tell her that he will be gone a long time. But she is still there waiting, and his leather belt is still hanging there, and each time the day ends, she reaches out to touch a naked waist and leans back against the wall. Certainty. Slow is the hand of the evening as it closes the gates. Slow are the girl's hands as she closes the window, draws the heavy blinds, and gathers the ashtrays overflowing with stops. She draws her face close to the mirror for a minute. They are late. They are very late. The clock on the wall ticks in the ordinary way. Slow are her steps to bed. Cold is the evening, the touch of the blanket. She pulls the cover over her body and leaves the lights on in all the rooms. It's also fine. It's also fine to die in our beds, on a clean pillow, and among our friends. It's also fine to die once, our hands crossed in our chests, empty and pale, with no scratches, no chains, no banners, and no petitions. It's fine to have an undusty death, no holes in our shirts, and no evidence in our ribs. It's also fine to die with a, with a white pillow, not the pavement under our cheeks, our hands resting in those of our loved ones, surrounded by desperate doctors and nurses, with nothing left but a graceful farewell, paying no attention to history, leaving this world as it is, hoping that someday someone else will change it. Old age. There are some inventions that do not exist. Old age is one of them. Those who go there, there, take childhood with them. Hold her templed little fingers in their hands. Tell her their stories. They take with them their silly little habits, their tricks to get around restrictions their sly, meaningful glances, the way they blame a friend, the way they complain, their impressions of the last conference or of the coming elections. I have seen many of them in their deathbeds. They want us to play with them. They fight against an enemy of a sort. They doubt an idea or a person. Their hand, when they hear the name of a cherished person, joyfully snatches the telephone or with a lazy cinematic gesture draws its instructions in the air. Say I'm asleep. They issue their familiar orders. They steal a cigarette from their visitors and hide it under the pillow. They discuss with you their future plans. Their, 
They misunderstand you, keep arguing until you are dismissed from the room. They take with them the way they pronounce their R's, their desire to be admired, their style of interrupting your sentences. They take with them their slippers, their loved ones, their razors, their makeup, and all the things they don't need on the last journey. Even we, who love them, we who since we were born have thought of life, thought that life was made up of them just as it is of water, air, fire, and earth, we who at that moment want to accompany them, just as we once did to the fanfare, we are left behind. For they, they, gently, cleverly, and for reasons only they know, refuse to take us with them. The Three Cypress Trees Transparent and frail, like the slumber of woodcutters, serene, portending things to come, the morning drizzle does not conceal these three cypresses on the slope. Their details belie their sameness. Their radiance confirms it. I said I wouldn't dare to keep looking at them. There is a beauty that takes away our daring. There are times when courage fades away. The clouds rolling high above change the form of the cypresses. The birds flying towards alternative skies change the resonance of the cypresses. The tiled line behind them fixes the greenness of the cypresses, and there are trees whose only fruit is greenness. Yesterday, in my sudden cheerfulness, I saw their immortality. Today, in my sudden sorrow, I saw the axe. A night unlike others. His finger almost touches the bell. The door unbelievably slowly opens. He gets in. He goes to his bedroom. Here they are. His picture next to his little bed, his school bag in the dark, awake. He sees himself sleeping between two dreams, two flags. He knocks on the door of all the rooms. He almost knocks. He does not. They all wake up. He's back. By God, he's back. They shout. They hear no sound for their clamor. They stretch their arms to hug Muhammad, but do not reach his shoulders. He wanted to ask them how they were doing under the night chilling. He did not find his voice. They too said things, but found no voice. He drew nearer, they drew nearer, he passes through them, they pass through him, they remain shadows and never meet. They wanted to ask him if he'd his supper, if he was warm enough over there in the earth, if his doctors could take the bullet and the fear out of his heart. Was he still scared? Had he solved the two arithmetic problems in order not to disappoint his teacher the following day? And he, he too, simply wanted to say, I've come to see you, to make sure you are all right. He said, Dad will forget as usual to take his hypertension bill, pill. 
I came to remind him, as I usually do. He said, my pillow is here, not there. They said, he said, and no voice. The doorbell never rang. The visitor was not in his little bed. They have not seen him. The following morning, neighbors whispered, it was all a delusion. Here was his school bag marked by the bullet holes and his stained notebooks. Those who came for condolences had never left his mother. Moreover, how could a dead child come back like this to his family, walking calmly under the shilling of such a very long, long night? Those are excerpts from my last book. It's a book-length poem called Midnight. They are translated by Radwa Ashur. Life is hidden somewhere, I know. Life is hidden not far from here, I know. Shall I look for it, like a pin, like a broken button, like a ring in the dirt? Shall I go back to sleep for one more hour to see her in my dream? Shall I go to Mount Banks and fortune tellers, explain how she looks, hoping that an amulet of their making hung around my neck might bring me back to her or bring her back to me? Shall I put her picture up in the police stations, emergency clinics, and newspapers with the sentimental caption, Life, we have forgotten you, we, we have forgiven you, we shall not punish you for running away, we are all waiting for you. Please, life, come back. Eternal runner, running towards her, how long is the distance? Whenever you are close to the finish line, they push it back and move it away from your tears of victory. As if you are made of weariness, as if you are made for weariness, from the sun's doorstep to the moon's balcony, you keep wide awake, Afraid that the stars will fall down if your hands do not fix them with nails to the walls of the night. Calm down a bit. Rest a moment, my friend. Rest a moment. Even the gods of ancient epics leave their temples possessed by the curses of oracles and the death of heroes and steal away to have some fun. Thunder has its working shifts then it draws its dotted blanket and goes to sleep. And like country women bathing in the frivolity of water springs, the stream dries its body with the towels of summer, reclines on a sheet of pebbles, and basks in the sun. To the plowman, to the river, to the train, there is a time of arrival and a celebration of homecoming. From faraway fronts, boiling like a cauldron of bewilderment, the soldiers return to the boredom of homely love, thanks to rotation and their mother's prayers. The sun's weariness settles into sugar in grapes, crimson in cherries, honey in figs, and olive oil in jars. War itself, leaning on its stick, walks a little bit in the corridors of peace. The massacre keeps awake all through your own night, working on perfecting your absence, then sits on her morning couch, meek, relaxed, and with true affection, plays with her nice dog. The clouds, with steams 
of burnt fly of burnt files touched by the breeze of sleep turn into satin pillows fringed with talkative lace and playful butterflies but you you my friend had you been created of marble we would have seen the drops of sweat on your marble brow without mercy a sweet music its sweetness does not console you the days have taught you in every long war a soldier with a distracted face and ordinary teeth sits next to his tent holding his bright sounding harmonica which he which has carefully protected from dust and blood and like a good bird uninvolved in the conflict he sings to himself a love song that does not lie for a moment he feels embarrassed at what the moonlight might think what's the use of a harmonica in hell a shadow approaches then shadows the soldiers one after the other join him in the song the singer takes the whole regiment with him to Romeo's balcony and from there without thinking without mercy without doubt they will resume the killing another except from midnight in a few moments the sun leaves its bedroom and in regal leisureliness takes the thick bandages of the senses of the universe the buds wake up from their winter's anesthesia and they chat intoxicated by their wine colors the flower prints on the girl's shirt come forth her heart learns the jingle of its bell her steps learn to take note and her pillow misses her untamed hair the goats scratch the wall the light scratches the poplar leaves blown in the winds the light scratches the brass bed the light scratches the bride's waist the soul of the universe is embodied in the grass the murrah the crickets the cooing and the dew in the strength of the mule the horse's lust and the mischief of little monkeys in their cages the wasp flies high going astray in all directions the first pea leaves the turnips and the chicory of the wild burst forth a wild love between a boy and a girl springs up like two stags clashing in the drizzle the red stallion turns on his back rubs his mane in the dirt kicks devils which he which he alone can see and he plays the stream rushes in the stream bed washing out the difference between pebbles and precious stones bone aches wake up the grandmother takes her cup of tea to the sunny triangle near the porch notinus gets restless the kids play their tricks on the good boy 
Geranium shamelessly parades its wantonness in the balconies. The little chameleon turns its neck right and left, like a proud fashion girl. The ants quit their intelligent warehouses. The snails get off their white castles. Coffee shops take their chairs out to the sidewalks. The swings that stood motionless like sugar-baked toys, toy horses raise the children's laughter to the furthest window. The couple prematurely thinks of silly names for their babies. The widow who experienced the patience of ashes suddenly seeks her looking glass and stands hesitant before her closet. But you, but you, my friend, with your wrist tied to a curse, you are forced to follow up what this wine of history does to your day, as if you have a son of your own, a son that will not give you light unless you kick it with your foot or whip it with a lash. From your cold stove, you take a piece of coal, and with a strong hand, you write on the wall, I must have a day that calls me by name. I must have a home that is not this page. Another excerpt from Midnight. <clears throat> this atmosphere of wild spring, now the tempest. With a gentle hand, the storm reaches to the handle of the world's door. It gets in like a hesitant stranger, strips off its masks one after the other, throws lightning into woods, darkness into torches, despair into ships, the devil into horses' hooves, blueness into the carriage driver's lips, and throws me naked into the jaws of the night. The storm almost trenches the stag's horns. The wave's muscles almost push back the coastline. The sea is phosphorescent horses whipped by unseen lashes with chew that dizzle the horizons, the stars, and carry in their flying hooves the smell of sulfur. No boats are hosted by the sea. The harbor is broken ceramics. Nothing protects the trembling coast, not even the foam's fur. Two chairs on the sand escape the storm as if they were two lame persons in a running contest. The most efficient of tamers will not close the jaws of this night. He will not restore the looseness waves to the guard's locks. Right away, I take refuge in that house with the imposing dome, with the merciful arches, with the worn blankets and grandfather's pictures worn out at the edges in spite of the solidity of their mustaches, pictures secure in the walls as if they were inbuilt. And my grandfather, still harboring the illusion that the word is fine, fills his countryside pipe for the, first, for the last time before the advent of the helmets and the bulldozers. On the bulldozer's teeth, my grandfather's cloak gets hooked. The bulldozer retreats a few meters, emptied its load, comes back to fill its huge fork and never has its fill. Twenty times the bulldozer comes and goes, my grandfather's cloak still hooked in it. 
after the dust and smoke had cleared from the house that was standing here and I was staring at the new emptiness, I saw my grandfather wearing his cloak. I saw him wearing the same cloak, not one similar to it, but the self-same cloak. He hugged me and remained silent and staring, as if his look ordered the rubble to become house, to become a house, restored the curtains to the windows, brought the grandmother back to her armchair and retrieved her colored medicine pills. He puts back the sheets on the beds, the lights on the ceilings, the pictures on the wall, as if his look brought the handles back to the doors and the balconies to the stars, as if it made us resume our dinner, as if the world had not collapsed, as if heaven had ears and eyes. He went on staring at the emptiness. I said, what shall we do after the soldiers leave? What will he do after the soldiers leave? He slowly clenched his fist, recapturing a boxer's resolve in his right hand, his coarse bronze hand, the hand which tamed the thorny slope, the hand which holds his hoe lightly and with ease as if he was praying, his hand which with a single blow parts a tree trump into two, his hand open for forgiveness, his hand closed on candy to surprise the grandchildren, his hand amputated years ago. Well, I'll finish by a very short poem. Interpretations. A poet sits in a coffee shop, writing. The old lady thinks he is writing a letter to his mother. The young woman thinks he is writing a letter to his girlfriend. The child thinks he is drawing. The businessman thinks he is considering a deal. The tourist thinks he is writing a postcard. The employee thinks he is calculating his debts. The secret policeman walks slowly towards him. Oh, Marie, that's wonderful. Um, might you read a little bit of this before... Um, if, unless they want to all, they will probably have so many questions. But but would you like to read a little paragraph from Ramallah? If uh, yes, time permits. I think they would love it, yeah. Well, uh, actually, I, 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 I thought of reading from just the very beginning, I mean, the opening chapter, which is the crossing the bridge on the River Jordan towards Ramallah. But it will take a long time to stop if I start this. <laughs> so I chose, I chose a paragraph about Jerusalem because it is short and it has a beginning and an end. All the world knows of Jerusalem as the power of a symbol. The Dome of the Rock is what the eye sees, and so it sees Jerusalem and is satisfied. The Jerusalem of religions, 
The Jerusalem of politics, the Jerusalem of conflict, is the Jerusalem of the world. But the world does not care for our Jerusalem. The Jerusalem of the people, the Jerusalem of houses and cobbled streets and spice markets, the Jerusalem of the Arab College, the Rajdiya School, and the Omariya School, the Jerusalem of the porters and the tourist guides who know just enough of every language to guarantee them three reasonable meals a day, the oil market and the sellers of antiques, the mother of pearl and sesame cakes, the library, the doctor, the lawyer, the engineer, the dressers of brides, the terminals of buses that trundle every morning from the villages where peasants come to buy and to sell, the Jerusalem of white cheese, of oil and olives and thyme, of baskets of figs and necklaces and leather and the Salahuddin street, our neighbor the nun and her neighbor the muazzin, who was always in a hurry, the palm, found, the palm fronds in all the streets on Palm Sunday, the Jerusalem of house plants, cobbled alleys, and narrow covered lanes, the Jerusalem of clotheslines. This is the city of our senses, our bodies, and our childhood. The Jerusalem that we walk in without much noticing its sacredness, because we are in it, because it is us. We loiter, on, we loiter or hurry in our sandals or our brown or black shoes, bargaining with the shopkeepers and buying new clothes for the Eid. We shop for Ramadan and pretend to fast and feel that secret pleasure when our adolescent buddies touch the buddies of European girls on Easter Sunday. We share with them the darkness of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and raise with them white candles that they light. This is the ordinary Jerusalem, the city of our little moments that we forget quickly because we will not need to remember, and because they are ordinary like water is water and lightning is lightning. And as it slips from our hands, it is elevated to a symbol up there in the sky. All conflicts prefer symbols. Jerusalem now is the Jerusalem of theology. The word is concerned with the status of Jerusalem, the idea of the myth of Jerusalem. But our lives in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem of our lives do not concern it. The Jerusalem of the sky will live forever, but our life in it is threatened by extinction. They limit the Israelis. They limit the number of Palestinians in the city. The number of Palestinian houses, the windows, balconies, schools, and nurseries. The number of people playing on Friday and Sunday. Tell the tourists where to buy their gifts, which lanes to walk in, which bazaars to enter. Now we cannot enter the city as tourists or students or old people. We cannot live there or leave there. We cannot get bored with Jerusalem and leave it for Nablus or Damascus or Baghdad or Cairo or America. We cannot desert it because of the high rents. We cannot grumble about it as people grumble about their tiresome capitals.
Perhaps the worst thing about occupied cities is that their children cannot make fun of them. Who could make fun of Jerusalem? Now, letters to our addresses will not reach us. They took the addresses of our homes and the dust of our drawers. They took the city's throngs and the doors and its lanes. They took even the, sent bro the secret brothel that stimulated our adolescent imagination in Bab Hutta Ali with the, uh, with the courtesans as fat as Indian statues. They took the St. Augusta Victoria Hospital and the Jabal Atur where Khali Atta had lived and the Sheikh Jarrah district where we lived once upon a time. They took the yawning of the pupils at their desks and their boredom in Tuesday's last lesson. They took the footsteps of my grandmother on her way to visit Hajja Hafiza and Hajja Rashida. They took those two women's prayers and their small room in the old city and the straw mat on which they used to play cards, bargees, and basra. They took that shop I traveled to, especially from Ramallah, to buy a pair of quality leather shoes to return to my family with cakes from Zalatimo and kunafa from Jafar after 16 kilometers in the Bamiya bus for five piastres only. I went back to our house in Ramallah proud and boastful for I was returning from Jerusalem. Now I will not see either Jerusalem of the sky or Jerusalem of the clothes lines. Israel, with the excuse of the sky, has occupied the land. Um, I'm going to throw it open for some questions. And um, there will be a roving microphone. And um, when it please, with your questions, wait until the mic comes to you so that everybody can hear it. It's there. But since I'm in the chair and since this is poetry, I wanted to ask, I, didn't, I don't want to get between you and this voice, but I would like to ask about the freedoms of the original, of your poems in Arabic from the fantastic richness of the Arabic tradition because I, you know, I mourn that I don't know Arabic, but I would love to know how you approach this relation to such a wonderful tradition. How do I come to write? Your poem? language, what, what your language is in relation, how, how you free language, yourself yeah, from it. Yeah, you know, the language of poetry is the most thorny issue. And actually it is, it is not an aesthetic theme. I find it existential. I mean, you are born to this uh, universe, and then you are part of a marketplace language, a political language, uh, newspaper language, radio language, TV language, business language. And then this language, I mean, we have to, to pay tribute to, to George Orwell in his marvelous article on, on the English language, I mean, 60 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, The White Elephant, where he traced the, the euphemisms that would lead to the opposite of what they originally are supposed to mean. So there is some sort of 
polluted language that we are surrounded with. When you go to art, a novel or a short story, but especially in a poem, then I think you can't reach anywhere if you use this same language, the same thumb-worn and too much used language, expected language. Then the dilemma is how to do it, as Bakhtin said once, that in a poem, in, in, in poetry, things should appear as if they were said for the first time. And it's a burden. It's also uh, a trouble if you take the task of having this kind of language in your daily life as a person. If you refuse cliches, if you refuse the uh, used images, but in practice inside the poem, you have to sacrifice so many, to say, adjectives, so many expected uh, words that might really jump into your white paper from from the air. They are not your words, but they are just hanging in the sky. See, like when you said it's heinous crimes. So the word heinous is just around the place. I mean, there's no beautiful crime. There is no elegant crime. There is no. So you just put heinous and you put the adjectives that, that are really coming to your mind. Uh, it's it's really existential because in 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 part of its duty. I hate the word duty, but I mean objectively, poetry is sort of an, of an answer to the marketplace language. It's a proposal for another language. It's a new suggestion. And I think uh, you cannot have reconciliation between the language of poets and the language of, of the government, the language of Tony Morrison and Tony Blair, for instance. If you <laughs> Seamus Heaney says it, poetry fortifies our inwardness and the, the government is not concerned with our inwardness. <laughs> yes. well, thank you. I, um, now, please, um, put up your hands to ask a question and the microphone will come to you. Thank you. Uh, Mureed, I'd, I'd like to um, get back to the question of the language of Tony Blair, which, which you just raised, um, and ask, I suppose, not so much a literary question as um, one about the world in which we're living and about which you write. Um, the situation in the Middle East, the war for the Middle East, has apparently um, worsened and worsened over the last five years, over the last... Um, 30 or indeed 50 years and yet at the same time this summer we've seen forces well in both in Iraq and in Lebanon we've seen forces standing up to the aggression thrown against them I just wondered how you see that situation at the moment and if you'd like to talk about that yes uh, I just came from Lebanon I was in Manchester, and I read poetry in St. Anthony's in Oxford, and this is the, my third reading in, in London, and I'm leaving after tomorrow back to the region. I spent three weeks in Lebanon, and I saw uh, the... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The southern suburb of Beirut, which is uh, Mr. Olmert and... Uh, his people, uh, Dan Halut and the uh, other brave uh, generals, succeeded in turning in, three, in 33 days, turning this region into a little Hiroshima with the encouragement of Mr. George Bush and Mrs. Condoleezza Rice, who uh, used to say all the time, Israel has the right to defend itself. Who hasn't? Who hasn't? I mean, this was a euphemism. Again, we were talking about the verbicide and the pollution of language. This was a, a euphemism for, okay, Mr. Ormit, go ahead. We give you more time to finish the job. Because when you say you have the right to defend yourself in the middle of a war, that all the world is crying to stop it and to, have to, to achieve a cessation of hostilities or a ceasefire, and then you tell the aggressor that, oh, you have the right to defend yourself. This is... Go ahead. You are licensed to kill for more time. And Olmert failed. He destroyed the city, parts of the city, but uh, it was really a remarkable failure of the so-called invincible Israeli army and of the American uh, 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 airlift of clever bombs that eventually and actually passed through this country to Lebanon and with the complacency and encouragement of the British government. And uh, even that did not work. So I, I saw with my own eyes a moment of defiance, and the Lebanese population are now changed, really. They feel that uh, their leader, I mean, this Hassan Nasrallah, came to the TV and said one thing, I captured two soldiers, I will exchange them through indirect negotiations. Wassalamu alaikum, and he went out. Mr. Olmert went to his own TV, and he said, I will destroy Hezbollah, I will disarm Hezbollah, I will kill the man, I will reach the Litani River, I will need 40 kilometers of demilitarized zone in southern Lebanon, and uh, I will imply, I don't know what resolution of the UN, and I will restore our soldiers. So nothing of the arrogant Olmert government objectives were realized, and this uh, religious leader was not addressing any religious issue. He was a politician 
a man who is organizing resistance, and he did not say any other thing rather than what he meant. And this is modernism to me. And then, this is to be remembered within the following context. Nothing happens. Please, I mean, I would like to underline the following statement that I'm going to say. Nothing happens in the region that, that is called here in Europe, the Middle East. Nothing happens, or nothing does not happen that is not connected to the original issue in the region, which is the Israeli military occupation of Palestine. Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, any troubles in the region is connected with the original historical development that is still unsolved, and they don't want it to be solved. They want to give us a peace process, an eternal peace process. They don't want to give us peace. And the American administration shakes with fear if the peace process stops, not if the peace is missing. So peace process, people coming and going and negotiating and traveling and closed doors and summits and meetings for years and years and years. And then Israel, during this period, is building settlements, building the wall, eating up the Palestinian territory, making impossible this, the, the, the two-state solu solution. And as Shamir said when he went to Madrid conference, my plan was to keep the negotiations drag for 20, 30, 40 years. And now, since Madrid, already we are coming to 20 years. And this is the American, Israeli, and European. I'm always uh, adding the European hypocrisy and lack of uh, resolution and decision as far as the southern Mediterranean is concerned, because we are the southern Mediterranean and you are the northern Mediterranean in Europe, United Europe. Uh, and then to neglect the strategic importance of peace and justice to be practiced in that southern part of the Mediterranean will not keep you in a good position, will not keep you, uh, 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 I mean, at rest. You know, this is an issue if you keep, if Europe keeps this uh, pro-American connivance and silence and lack of action and lack of resolution, they don't know what they are sacrificing. They are sacrificing so many things and at the top of them, peace in the whole world. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict needs peace, not peace process, not hypocrisy, not procrastination. And uh, the Palestinians really, I, I lived for 30 years critical of my own leadership, critical of the PLO, critical of the Palestinian Authority. I don't like their policies. I, I was critical all of the time of their policies. They made so many horrible mistakes. Uh, and I'm critical of them all the time, up to this moment. I was against so many of their policies, against the Oslo Treaty, against what they did after Oslo, against the way of the, they negotiated peace, the, the way they went to the Intifada. And so 
but in the same time, I'm aware of the bare fact that Israel, as if they are waiting for the Palestinians to elect a Palestinian Zionist as a leader of the Palestinian Authority or the PLO to accept talking peace with him. Of course, this will not happen. So, nowadays, the issue in the Middle East should have prior attention, even in this continent. Now we are talking nuclear. Now we are talking Iran. We are talking Korea. We are. To I mean, this Bush has made this planet much more dangerous place to live in, and and he can't do anything about it. It's a snowball that's really rolling into into inf into infinite horror. I mean, this proliferation of nuclear power is really dangerous. But the hypocrisy in dealing with it, I mean, North Korea to be dealt with diplomatically. Iran should be bombed out of its idea. And then, I mean, this kind of double talk and this kind of uh, uh, hypocrite uh, hypocrisy practiced by the United States administration is applied in every aspect of our political life in the 21st century. We have to do something about it at least. As poets, we have to propose another language of their language. This is my impression now. Please. Do you know any Israeli poets whose language you can respect and perhaps you've been in touch with them? Thank you very much. This is the third time I've been asked uh, this question. I have never met a journalist or a reader asking any Israeli uh, well-known author whether he knows a Palestinian writer. <laughs> but I'm fond of the work of Yehuda Amihai, whom I read in English translations. I'm fond of the work of Itzhak Laur, who is a great poet and a great, a, a great man of conscience. Uh, and uh, so many prose writers and journalists who, and lawyers who lived up to the morality of a human being who is really keeping a distance with his leadership that is committing atrocities against another unarmed nation. And then Amir Ahas and Israel Shamir, and uh, those, some of them are our friends, some of them we meet, some of them we talk to, and some of them we are happy to be friends with. And uh, I don't know really uh, on the opposite camp, as you used to, to use this, whether they are really interested in, in, in believing that we have literature at all. Once uh, they said, if the, the Palestinians are not a nation, had they been a nation, they should have writers and poets. Yes. Natanzach, yes, yes, yes. I'm not, I'm not giving a list, but, but I mean, this is part of our own orientation. I mean, Yehuda Amihai is a fascinating poet. I, I do love his, his poems. He has this great poem about uh, a small shop in Jerusalem. It's fascinating, and, and I, I, I know many of. And then uh, I am disgusted with the positions of Amos Oz and David Grossman, who are hypocrites, who are having double face, and who move all around the world as uh, members of the peace camp, peace camp, and then in the joints of historical 
development, they just take the army language and they talk like the chief of staff. In time of crisis, we line with the government. And then they supported the war on, on Lebanon. And they were silent through all, all the time of the Intifada. And when the negotiations reached a point where the right to return of the Palestinian refugees were discussed, they said this will, deter, this will, uh, will be de detrimental to the pureness, to the purity, to the ethnic purity of the Jewish state. No respectable writer can think of the refugees who are human beings as statistics and as possibility of doing this or that in the future. They are living a miserable life for, for, for decades now. And if you care for life, you have to care for this. Any war, the moment it ends, all refugees from all sides go back to their houses. To neglect this fact and to fight for it, to fight against it, okay, I can understand it from an army general who wants to be uh, promoted, but from a poet, a novelist, a writer, I find it a shame. Mm -hmm. Over there, question over there. I heard you in Manchester last Friday, and you spoke um, in Arabic. Would it be possible, is there enough time to give a short reading in Arabic? Because I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will read in Arabic a, sh a short poem called Ramza, a wink. It's about a village wedding. I dedicated to Ruth because she heard it in Arabic in Bahrain, and now I feel that she has connected with it in a way. So, Ramzatun min aynha fil arus, wanjana al walad, wa kaan al ahla wal layla. وأكتاف الشباب المستعيذين من الأحزان بالدبكة والعمات والخالات والمختار صاروا لا أحد وحده اللويح في منديله يرتج كل الليل والبنت التي خصته بالضوء المصفى أصبحت كل البلد مد يمناه على آخرها نفض المنديل مثنا وثلاثا ركب الجن على ركبته ثم رماهم وانحنى ركب الجن على كتافه ثم رماهم واعتدل قدم ثبتها في الأرض لمحا ورمى الأخرى إلى الأعلى كشاكوش وأرساها وتد كلما أوشك أن يهوي على سحجة كف جاءه من سحبة الناي سند يلقف العتمة كالشهوة من أعلى بروج الليل حتى ضوء عينيها تماما يعرق الصدر وشعر الصدر من ميلاته يمنى ويسرى ثم يسري عرق الظهر عموديا تماما وحياء القلب خلى كل ما في القلب يخفى والقميص الأبيض المبتل من أكتافه حتى حزام الجلد خلى فقرات الظهر تحصى بالعدد غمزة أخرى ولو مت هنا غمزة أخرى ولو طال انتظاري للأبد Well, we are still in a city of little moments 
And you have more moments here. Anybody else would like to ask a question? Yes, here. In the excerpt from uh, I Saw Ramallah that you read for us, you spoke of dust. And I read the book two years ago um, when I first bumped into it in this shop and started to read it again uh, because I was coming to see you tonight. And you spoke very movingly. Uh, you talk of picking language out of the sky and putting it onto a piece of paper. And you said that today. Dust is a very simple word for us in English, and it's obviously a wonderful concept for you, but then you spoke of the dust as you went across the bridge, and it was the dust that your, your brother wouldn't see and feel. Can you tell us something about dust for you? When you lose it after 30 years, just stepping on the earth, on the dirt, on the dust of a prohibited land. It took me a book, a whole book, to describe this moment. So, dust is concreteness, not illusions. It is related to the senses. It has its touch, its smell, its feel. It's not an item in the uh, program of political parties. It's not a slogan. The land has its own body. But I never had nostalgia to this. Because you are prohibited by an overwhelming force, not less than a military army and a military government and a hugely powerful state, that you don't feel nostalgia, you feel some sort of anger, what to do about this, about that. I try to write in concrete language, in poetry and in prose. I don't like hallucination and um, poetry that's... Uh, that borrows the language from the clouds and <laughs> no, I'm an earthly person. I trust my senses and I follow them. That's, that's why I feel, too, I feel that any political issue is a personal issue that touches my very being. That's why I can really identify with the victim from the enemy side. I can identify with uh, with the loss of one single life, with one scratch in a finger of a person that's done unjustly. I don't like abstractions. I don't like oversimplification. I don't like even literary theories. And I'm never intimidated by any literary theory. And then this concreteness of the land, the dust, the dirt, is part of my own personality. And then the whole issue in Palestine is about a concrete thing, the ownership of the place. 
I used to say always that to me, place has become time. I lost my places, all my places. I lived in 30 houses. I lived in three continents. I had always to leave my places, my hotels, my flats, so that I'm afraid now to cling to any place, to love places. I don't love them. I'm, I don't dare to love a place. I leave always my plant, my paintings, my books, and leave. My broken will is the name of the, uh, of the game because the will of the, my enemy is always uh, the winner in the moment. I mean, for, they give me a residence permit in a, in, a, in a place and then they tell me, okay, no more, go out. I go out. So I'm not theorizing the struggle. I'm not putting it in, in the field of, uh, of uh, metaphysics. It's a physical struggle. That's why I'm, I'm not happy with the position of the, some, the so-called Israeli peace camp towards the refugee problem. They think of it as a political issue. They don't see the physique of the issue. There are people who are living miserably for 50 years, 60 years, in strange places, prohibited from 78 kinds of jobs in Lebanon. This is a government law that prohibits, prohibits the Palestinian refugees from working in 78 kinds of jobs. So they leave to them to be garbage collectors and, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe prostitutes. And this type of uh, life is a physical dilemma not a political one. A poet must not politicize issues. He must humanize them. This is my point of view. I try to do that. I don't know, with failure, with success, with relative failure, relative success, but genuinely, this is what I always attempted to do. Thank you. The trouble with dust, of course, is you can have dust clouds, too. That's one of the things you've been talking about. It's a question here. Hi. You said you try and, as a poet, you try and humanise issues and not, and not politicise them. But, and I was just wondering, would you have been a poet if it, you hadn't been born in, uh, as a Palestinian in Ramallah? Or has being born there brought out the poetry in you? Yeah. I know poets from Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> so what made they Guatemalan? person, a poet, I mean. Derek Walcott is from Trinidad, and, and Seamus Haney from Ireland, and, and, and Shakespeare from Stratford upon Avon. And so, I mean, uh, most probably I would have been, uh, I, I, I mean, it's daring to say I'm a poet. I mean, I'm writing poetry. I like to write, to write, to write poetry, most probably regardless of where I came from. I mean, the way I'm structured spiritually and uh, the way I receive the word, the way I'd love to transmit it again, is, is my own way. And I think this might have been my character regardless of geography and history. But, but history and geography are an integral element in this structure of mine, in my build-up 
my spiritual build-up and in my language and in my thought and my readings and in my observation of the life around me and surrounding me. So it's not uh, an issue that, uh, that you can just eliminate history and geography and keep the individual and you cannot imagine that only with a political cause can a poet be uh, grow as a poet. No, but the politics of the region play a detrimental role in the way we approach poetry. So if we write slogans and speeches and uh, uh, abstractions and oversimplifications then, we become just like the, I mean, uh, employees of the Ministry of Information, and we can never reach this level of poetry. But when you go to your own self, you receive the word your own way, you try to transmit it your own way, then you might be a good poet. I'm trying to write poetry in this perspective, and I don't know whether I'm a successful uh, person, or I have just to try again. I've published 14 books of poetry, and one book of memoir, and I'm still uh, afraid to come to meet you, and I'm afraid to write my next poem. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for coming here. Um, and uh, secondly, you know, when I think of what happens to the Palestinians and the Lebanese, um, and when I try to write about something like that, all that, what I'm filled with is just rage. And when I try to write about it, all I can do is just scratch the page until it just turns black. And I can't write about it. And so what I wonder is, you know, how are you able to ch channel that rage and turn it into essentially order, all that disorder and chaos into order and put it into something so beautiful? I mean, where do you find that spiritual energy? How are you able to do it? Thank you very much for this question. I mean, it seems encouraging, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you think that I'm, uh, I'm not a, a failure, but uh, I mean, I'm shy to answer this question because I don't know whether I succeeded in handling anything of my themes in any of my poems. Up to this moment, I'm, as I said, I'm just trying and trying and trying. My 15th book would be my 15th attempt to say the word as I, wanted to, as I want to say it and as I want to see it, as I want the, uh, to invite you as a reader, I mean, to, to come to me with the same window to look at the word as I saw it at that moment from this glass and I leave you there. The thing is, uh, you you do not choose you do not choose the theme of of your life. Uh, you know, we we start as teenagers. We we are all poets. We are all uh, fond of being different. Fond of being artistic in a way. Uh, we go to movies, we go to theater, we, we, we try to speak to our girlfriends in a different language. And, but at the same time, the pressure of, of, uh, of, uh, of the surrounding language around you is 
is very much influential in deciding where do you go with it. I mean, I'm a person who is really upset with the marketplace language. When I say marketplace, I don't mean the shops. Marketplace, I mean this global, global system, this uh, American domination, this uh, hegemony of uh, denial of any other culture, this definition, I mean, in, in Manchester, there came up an archaeologist, unfortunately, I mean, it's a deplorable fact, uh, uh, a professor of archaeology who defined the Palestinian, the words Palestinian and Muslim and Arab. He made, he defined us according and vis-a-vis -vis and with the uh, frame of reference of the Jewish Bible. So the history starts there. Everything is a minor detail. And whenever he mentioned the Palestinian people, he made his fingers like this. He, he put us within inverted commas. And he is teaching children. So, I mean, students. And he's writing books. And nobody, I mean, I could not archaeologically challenge his uh, proofs. I'm a poet. But we did not find in the hall who is going to just to stand for that. So in such moments, I mean, you feel driven by a secret force, by unknown powers, to, to say, here I am. Look at my description. Listen to my voice. Look at my features. I am just like you, and you are, I'm not going to be defined easily. The fact that I am so weak now that I cannot define others does not allow them to take the license to define me. This might lead you to be a writer. One of, one of the, I think, I think Matisse, I have somewhere, probably someone here will, will know it. There's a quotation from Matisse when he says, um, no work of art that worked ever came out of hate. And one of the extraordinary things about your poems is that we don't hear that. We hear struggle and reaching for some clarity and a spirituality, but we don't hear hate. Well, I mean, with hate you can reach nowhere except to further hatred. And it's not an awareness that leads you to this. It's, it's uh, your eyes, your senses again that hatred is, is a cul-de-sac, is a closed, I mean, a road with dead end. You can't take poetry to that dead end. You can't take art to that dead end. You can't take a human uh, life to a respectable uh, m march in life, regardless of what happens. I mean, you might lose your life in the march, you might uh, lose things in the march, you might lose your way sometimes, but with hatred, you can't start anything. Unfortunately, the amount of hatred in wars is, uh, in wars is not less than the amount of hatred in words. And I just came also in, from Brazil in a literary trip, and one question addressed to me was about 
with the words can bring people and nations nearer. And my answer was that the most urgent task is that let us think of why words in modern times are doing this uh, spasm and hatred and fear, disseminating fear in every citizen. And they create certain words to disseminate fear and to encourage clashes, encourage wars. And this notion of us, them, in the neocons in the United States, with this language, how can you bring people nearer to each other? This us, them, we are living in, I mean, I might call it an international apartheid language of hatred. And then we, we, we have to stand for that. And as writers, the human has to be all the time in the front ground and in the background and in the six directions of any writer who respects himself or herself. Humanity and the acceptance of all cultures on this earth, regardless of the background, no more division of the human beings into categorization and classification and division of us and them. It's so dangerous, this political language that's coming from Washington. And sometimes you hear it from Europe, and sometimes you hear it from our dictators in the, in the region. I mean, those dictators in the Arab world are really funny because they are, I mean, name them in Jordan, Syria, and, and, and in, 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 within the, within even Egypt, I'm living in Egypt, but I mean, ridiculous dictators, and they are really the friends of the White House, the friends of Bush who is killing everybody in order to impose the, uh, democracy in the region. So this kind of uh, human approach to, to, to writing and to life and to war and to history and to geography is the singular element without which no writing can reach anywhere. One more question, I think. Hello. Just to go back to, you touched upon your feeling of fear before you sit down and write each new poem. And um, in I Saw O'Malley, you talk about the fear that replaces the certainty you feel about your poems in that stage between submission and publication. Yeah. And I just wondered if you could elaborate a little on this fear and whether or not post-publication the certainty returns and where you think this comes from. It comes from the lack of confidence and lack of complacency. I think a, a writer uh, loses value the moment he or she is complacent with what he writes and very much happy with his style, with his achievement, with his fame, with his anything that is positive. You should always uh, betray your own style. You should move from something you think you have perfected into another attempt to the unknown. So in, in my work you see that I have I mean poems that are made up of five lines and poems that are a book length 
and poems that are narrative and dramatic and lyrical and satirical and poems that you laugh after you um, listen to them or read them. And I write this kind of epigrams and, and, and I write prose poetry and uh, poetry that is dependent on the uh, classical uh, meters of uh, the Arabic classical poem from the pre-Islamic pre times. And I'm not ashamed to use all those forms. From my first book, you know, there's a row in the, in, in the Arab countries the, uh, that the lazy critics and the lazy poets are telling you that, I mean, if you, are a, if you write in prose, if you write in prose poetry, then you are modern. If you use the meters of the classical Arabic poetry, then you, you are just, I mean, fail to catch the train of modernity. Uh, and and uh, for my first book published in 1972, my first book in, of poetry, I wrote prose poetry and without being uh, uh, aware that I'm doing anything that is, I mean, revolutionary or anything. And the critics did not notice that because most of the poems were metrical. And then uh, uh, I'm still now doing this, writing in any form I like. I mean, my dictatorship of, of uh, literary theory, I mean, I'm not... I mean, my dictator, who, who is really imposing the form and the style and the rhythm and the temperature of my poem, is my first lines, my rough copy. This is the uh, guideline that I follow. I've never followed any literary theory. And I think that a beautiful book of poetry can uh, turn all literary theories upside down. And if you, among you, there are, I mean, people who write poetry and uh, think very much with, with, with worry and fear of what the literary critics say, don't listen to them. Follow exactly. Because every poem you write, it, it proposes to you its own aesthetics. When you start the first two lines, then they lead you to, to the special aesthetics of this piece. And you can't know whether they are similar to the poem that you wrote yesterday or that they will be the uh, line that you are going to follow forever. That's why a writer must not be expected, must not have a definite definitive style. You have to betray yourself from one poem to another. You have to keep exploring styles and methods and poetry is just like I mean trying to attack a fortress fortified fortress and you say the fortress of significance I mean in this it's, it's a symbolic you come to, to reach it from this side that side this side from up from down slowly quickly and you never reach this significance fortress. You never attack it. But you have to try to find a way to come closer. This attempt is noble. And it's rewarding. And I really encourage any, anyone not to, to try to, to find answers of how to write a poem, how to come about it, but just 
to keep asking questions. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.